When I was young, my favorite time of year was summer. Will Smith rapped about it. Summer, summer, summer time. It's the best time of the year. My senior year of high school, I parlayed and lined up all of my other friends' family vacations at Myrtle Beach so that I could spend five consecutive weeks in Dirty Myrtle. It's the best time of the year. Then I had kids, and I saw them come home from the last day of school. And the routine that I had gotten so used to for eight months was completely blown up. And then I'll get into a new routine, but now I must say my favorite season has changed because tomorrow begins my favorite season. It's my here, please help us teach them the ABCs in math day. It's drop your kids off at school for the teachers to teach them. And I just want to be clear, if you're a teacher, I will buy you a glue stick. I will get you luggage to go on vacation at spring break. I am grateful for you. If you need some paper, I'll buy you some paper. If you can't find it at your office depot, I'll find it at my office depot. I'm just excited that my kids get to go to school because it means that uh, I don't have to look at them for about five hours. And I know I'm not supposed to say that. But I'm just being honest. Uh, how many of you are excited for school to start tomorrow? <laughs> Parents and all the teachers were silent. Uh, we, listen, teachers, we are grateful for the way that God has called, gifted, and crafted you. Uh, we're in a, a part of history in our country where people who love Jesus and are called into teaching, and particularly into the public school square, is of greatest essential need. We need you. Not, we know you don't do it because of the paycheck. You'd have quit a long time ago. Ministry and teaching. You don't go into it because you're going to make the money. Like, like, um, but the reason you go into it is because there was, I believe, probably for all of you, some sense of calling at some point in time where you wanted to shape a generation of people. And what you're getting ready to do uh, has probably been uh, overregulated, and the hurdles and the things that you loved about teaching may be challenges that you now face and have become kind of bur- made teaching burdensome to you. But I just want you to know, in Christ, we need everything that you are as you walk into that classroom tomorrow that He's giving you to pour out into this next generation because they need light, they need salt, uh, they need hope. They need a teacher that can impact and change their lives. And for all of us in this room, you probably have that one or two teachers that God just kind of put in your life at the right time, and they made a positive or, for some of us, a really negative impact in our life. And so we believe what you do matters. And I I just want to take some time to pray over our homeschool teachers, our private school teachers, and our public school teachers, because tomorrow is the first of a lot of days. How many days are in a school year? A hundred and... And the, and the teachers are, are ready to come with that information. There's 180, and then there's a break. There's a break. So um, if you're a teacher, would you just kind of raise your hand in the air? Let us see who you are in the room. Let's give it up for them. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jesus said his, his house will be a house of prayer, so let's pray for the homeschool teachers, the public school teachers, the Uh, private school teachers. Let's pray for the teachers. How about that? Uh, Together. Let's do it. Father, uh, we come before you grateful that your word says that one generation will tell of your works to another and that we get this humble opportunity as a community to raise this next generation 
through the skills and gifts that you've given us. And we in particular today want to pray for all of our teachers and admins who are getting ready for another school year. I ask, Father, that you would give them patience and grace. Uh, we just sang in that song that you would give us your eyes to see people. And I pray that that would be the way that these teachers would see their students, with kingdom eyes and the potential of who they are becoming in Christ Jesus. Give them patience for the difficulty and obstacles that are going to come, the things that we can't foresee and challenges that they're going to face. Help them on the difficult days to lean into you, to find the energy, to find the joy, to find the passion, to teach well. And God, we pray that over this next year, students would encounter your kingdom through the lives of these teachers that are here today. We lift them to you in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen. We're studying the book of Acts. I did a lot of work praying and working through next year's preaching calendar. So if you want to know what Pastor Russ did over the last week, it was figuring out how we were going to get through 28 chapters of Acts between now and the end of next year. We're going to take breaks. We're going to break this up into four chunks of uh, looking at what God does. Uh, we begun this week, uh, or excuse me, last week looking at a series called Uncommon Community. We're looking at the sections of this story that are about the inauguration of the church. It's about God making a scattered people, a united people, for the purpose of them being filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit so that they would be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria so that this plan of the gospel that began in Jerusalem would go to the very ends of the world. In one book, we get the story of this uncommon people from different backgrounds and economic statuses who find unity and family around Jesus so that they would be then scattered and sent around the world to make his name known. So by the end of the book, literally the ends of the earth hearing the gospel, which was the book uh, which was the nation of Rome, where Paul ends his book on a missionary journey. I'm humbled and excited that periodically for about the next 18 months, I'm going to get to preach around 43 sermons as of today. That is subject to change on the 28 chapters that we find in this book called Acts. It's the second in a two-part series. Uh, Dr. Luke, uh, commissioned by a man named Theophilus, to write an account of Jesus' work while he was physically on earth, continues with the story of Jesus' continued work through this thing called the local church in a book called Acts. This lines up for us with the very significant thing that we're doing in our church, and that is that we believe that every single one of you need uh, providential relationships that would be given to you by God that would spur you on to good works, that would help you to run at a pace uh, that is uh, wholehearted in its pursuit of Jesus, that would help you to reach your full potential in Christ. I personally believe that you and I, in any season of significant growth in our faith, can look back and go, man, God put those people around me to challenge, to call me out, to love me when I was difficult to love, to walk in my mess when I was a hot Mess And as a result of them being put by God there, I grew and can see how God developed and rooted me in my faith. And so we want you uh, to find some people that God would have you break bread with, share life with, divide burdens with, multiply joys with, so that you could be an uncommon few for the glory of God together. Are you tracking with me? 
Now, last week I avoided a word. It was a word I didn't want to preach to you about, so I set it aside for an entire message because when I don't like to talk about something, it likely means that the Holy Spirit's working on me about it. And today I get to preach you the word I don't want to talk to you or talk about much. It comes in the fourth verse of chapter 1. In it, Jesus has been appearing to his disciples for a period of 40 days. He's getting ready to ascend on the Mount of Olives back to the Father. But he's given his disciples some instructions. And in verse 4, we read this. Check it out with me. See if you can pick up on the word that Pastor Russ doesn't like. Once, when he was eating with them, Jesus, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. In the ESV, it says, wait for the gift that was promised. So I like the NLT. They, they take some of the edginess off of it. Don't leave. You know, just piddle around here. Shop. You looking for anything? No, we just, we're just looking. We're just looking, right? I like just looking because I can still be busy. But I don't like waiting because waiting carries a lot of don't move stuff with it. And I like to move. I mean, I, I like to do stuff. I like to accomplish things. I am a task list oriented person. You give me 10 things that need to get done, written down, I will, by the end of the day, at least have one of them done. Amen? And I can at least then identify what didn't get done and let you know that I'll work on it tomorrow. But my point is, I work best when I know that there's something to do that I can put my time and attention towards doing. I, I, I'm not content with, at the end of the day, not being able to identify anything that I positively affected or changed or got done. Like, it makes me miserable inside. And so my least favorite word in all of Scripture, whether it's in English or Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic or any other language, is the word, wait. Because I don't wait well. Now, there's a purpose to godly waiting. When God calls you to wait, it's not because He's not ready. Uh, it's not because He doesn't have His details together. It's because there's some different work that must be done before the journey continues. So the weight that God calls us to is always a weight of purpose, not a weight of aimlessness. Some of you have waited in a doctor's office because the doctor couldn't show up on time. That's not God. His weights are tied to good-rooted work. And in this text, we see in verses 4 and 5, two quick things that teach us about weights. Number one, it's a command at certain parts of our journey. There are going to be times where you're not to move forward, you're instead to wait. You may know or have an idea of where you're going to go next, but God nonetheless says, wait. You may want the door to open, but nonetheless the door is closed because God is trying to get it through to you that it is not time to walk on or through that door because you have some work to do before you get through that door, so you need to wait. So there are times where God commands, calls, shuts everything down if he has to, so that you get it through your mind that you're going to have to wait when it's a journey with God. So it's a command, but the second thing that we see is that the command has a promise. It's wait, but not forever. Wait until the Holy Spirit is given to you from on high so that you can be my witnesses. So you're waiting for equipping. 
You're waiting to be empowered. You're waiting because there is a work that's going to require what you're going to receive in the waiting for the work that is ahead on the other side of it. Here's why I don't like waiting. Here's why I think waiting is perhaps the most difficult task that God could ask me and probably most of you to do. Waiting reveals my lack of trust in God. It reveals, especially if the wait takes more than a fast food drive through In first service, I said, I am a proponent. Here's what I want. I don't think I'm asking for much. I want a Ruth Chris drive through with Chick-fil-A prices. That's all I'm asking for, which is what a lot of us want God to do. We want Ruth Chris destinations and callings. We want Ruth Chris quality impact, reputation, but we want it on a fast food drive-thru. Which often means that if God gave you what you wanted, your character couldn't hold it. You would take what's meant to give you a means to worship and honor God, but an underdeveloped fast food calling character that you want, what would end up happening is you would turn it into an idol so that you would actually dishonor God. So instead... God will show you sometimes where he's going to lead you, what he's going to do, and what it will look like when you get there. That's a Harley, not a thunder. (laughs) But he will not, at times, give you all of the details or begin you on the journey until there's been a season of waiting and preparing. And in it, you learn things that you don't like. Like, maybe I don't trust God as much as I say I trust God. Waiting deepens dependency. It allows you to understand that this is not a call of man. This is not an idea that you scheme. This is a call of God. It'll be by his provision, by his leadership, by his means that you will get from where you are at to the place of promise that he has called you to go. And waiting allows you to deepen in the understanding that while your work is accepted, it is not the reason for the arrival. Dallas Willard said, God is, not opposed to effort, God is not opposed to effort, but he is opposed to earning. The idea that your effort earns your destination. No, no, no. We don't serve a karma religion. You, none of you get what you deserve. None of you get what you deserve. Instead, we get grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, which is a Greek way of saying it's a constant, flowing, never ending grace. So when you think you're doing good and you're earning, know that that is grace because it's his air you're breathing, a body that he's given you that you're using, and his resources that he's allowed you to put his hands on, to put your hands on. This is making sense? So, so I don't like to wait because it involves trust, and I don't trust God the way that I ought to trust God. I don't like to wait because waiting reminds me of how little control I have, and I like control. I don't like waiting because it involves acknowledging that it is God's call and God's work and His movement that will make it go forward. You see, for me, I can honestly confess that my waiting has often led to seasons of wandering from God instead of expectant, patient waiting on God. And maybe you can relate. 
There was a guy named Abraham. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. He's a father. He had many sons. We sing that about him. But isn't it odd that I think when he died, he had two? And the conflict was like, it wasn't like, if you want to have a great family, look to Abraham and Sarah, right? Like, like, so they have this huge call. You're going to be the father of nations, Abraham. And oh, by the way, here's what it's going to look like at your death. One son's going to hate the other. They're going to hate each other and be enemies for the rest of your life because you guys thought it would be cool instead of waiting to try and like manipulate a move of God. See, a lot, a lot of us, we would rather appear like we're in a move of God than wait on an actual move of God that would actually be powerful and impactful. So we, we would rather give the appearance of, look at us, we're such a great move of God when it's plastic, all because we can't sit and trust and wait on a real move of God that would actually be a real revival, that would actually be uncontrollable. That would actually bring real power and restoration in our life. So the lack of waiting in Abraham's life leads him to having two sons, and they're warring with each other, and there's lots of conflict, because apparently when you sleep around with other women and you're married, it doesn't go well. In Old Testament times, New Testament times, recent times, I mean, it just doesn't, doesn't work out really well for you. But we learn something about Abraham in spite of his dysfunctions. In Romans chapter 4, Paul writing to remind this group of suffering believers about the promises of God that they were waiting to receive the fulfillment of, writes and says this, even when, for Abraham, there was no reason for hope, how long had it been since the promise? Long enough that hope was no longer reasonable in the public eye. How many of you have been guided, directed, given a call from God that you believed with confidence for a season, but it is past the season culturally of acceptable hope being put in it. Past the reason of hope, Abraham kept what? Hoping. He's the buddy of he's buddy the elf of hope. He just keeps singing. And when it gets awkward, he sings more. And when, and when it gets even more awkward, he's singing. Like, like that, that's Abraham. I'm hoping. Another year goes by. He's hoping more. A lot of years go by. Guess what he's doing? Hoping. That's where he's at. Are you you tracking with me? Believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken in his way, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead. He wasn't unrealistic about the challenges. Apparently, 100-year-olds don't father lots of children. So I've heard. He might be a miracle maker. A hundred years of age, he figured his body was good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, he didn't sustain his faith, but his faith grew stronger in his weight. And in this, he brought glory to God. Look at what it says as a result. He was fully convinced. How many of y'all been around a person that, like, from your perspective, they were just wrong. Like, it's probably a child because they know everything. They, they're born in full knowledge of everything, and then they get dumb. Like, I don't understand it. That as they become adults, they just get dumber and dumber. And 
Then they have more children that are, that are given to them to be wise for them. I mean, I've argued with kids about the order of the ABCs, and they're like, uh-uh, Daddy, that ain't right. And I'm like, yes, it is right. And I know it's not. I'm like, I'm, I'm dumb, but I ain't that dumb. Like, I still remember the song. You can't say your R is right. I mean, I think I'd, you know, weigh in the two. I'd just go with me, Thunder. I mean, like, they were just convinced. Now, you can be convinced and be wrong. But if it's the promise of God and the truth of God and you stand convinced in it, even when the circumstances that stand in front of you seem to contradict it, you get this kind of faith that Abraham had. And I would encourage you that right now you are either wondering in your way or you are growing expectant in your way and it's, there's really no common ground between the two. That you can wander away from God in the wait or you can draw close to God and with it, have this convinced conviction that comes into your life that God is able to do whatever he promised. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. So Abraham's story is unique in detail, but it's to benefit you and I and encourage, galvanize, admonish you and I in our weights. Because if God can take a hundred-year-old man with no children... And give him a nation as vast as the stars. Then what weight and what challenge and what hurdle that stands between you and the promise is too difficult for God to not do the same in your life? In what way, if God can do things like what he's done with Abraham, in what way is he not worth the weight and worth the faith in the weight that is required as you're waiting on God to come through for you. So look at what it says. For our benefit too, this story's been given to us, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous. And what's it speaking to? We believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Let me give the context to you really quick. I think this is good. For some of you, the hardest thing for you to believe in the weight is that you are fully loved fully accepted, fully received, truly forgiven, that God's not wandering or wavering in His love towards you. Because in your mind, you got in the way of the story. In your mind, tragedy interrupted and removed the opportunity for you to be obedient. And so now, there was a promise over there but you find yourself somewhere over here. I'm going to make the camera people work. And this is not where you're supposed to be in your mind. If you had been obedient, if God loved you, if God's power was enough, this is not where you're supposed, we're supposed to be over there. We're not on schedule. We're, we're, God's losing control. And it's my fault and I can't make it up. So I'm riddled with worry. So I begin to look at myself not as who I am according to Scripture in Christ, but I begin to accept that I am substandard or second rate because I'm not where I think I should be. And in the middle of that, Paul would suggest by the Spirit to us that God never loses anyone in the weight. That you may have run and gone farther than you ever thought that you could go. Said things that you never dreamed that you would say. 
experienced griefs and evils and pains that you never thought that a Christian would go through or a called person would experience. And in the middle of all of its brutality and difficulty, there stands this parallel track of the sovereignty of God that over all of life's circumstances says, not a waste, not delayed, not out of place. And in his leadership and sovereignty, he knows he's bringing you right on time to the place where he's called you to go. <laughs> I think about the guy named Joseph. Y'all remember him? Coat of many colors? One? Okay, cool. Um, he gets this promise that his family's going to bow down to him. Remember that? Super immature. Goes to breakfast the next morning, rubs it in. Hey, guess what? God told me last night. You're all bowing. To who, Joseph? Me. That's who. In his mind, he was seconds, moments away from a parade of a kingdom that needed a king coming by to swoop him up so that he could reign as Joseph the Great. What he didn't know, though, is that in between this promise and this dream, in between the fulfillment and where he stood, there was a gap. And that gap was going to require a journey. And that journey started with him getting thrown into a pit a little bit later that afternoon. And then he got sold for balsamic and gum, for balsamic gum. Don't know if it's good. Sounds great. Bubblicious should look into it. He's thrown into slavery. And then when, the very next words you read, because the journey's supposed to go that way, but the very next words you read when the journey goes this way is, and the Lord was with Joseph. Why is that? Like, it's supposed to be like, and Joseph reigned, and the Lord was with. No, it's like he was in. Uh, uh, enslaved in Potiphar's house and the Lord's with Joseph. So then in slavery, guess what happens? Joseph has everything he needs. Until the day that Potiphar's wife corners him and takes his robe and then he goes running like the streak. Some of y'all remember Ray Stevenson. It was written about this moment where he just runs through and Potiphar's wife says he did it and he said it wasn't me and Potiphar's wife believed his Potiphar believed his wife and threw him into jail. You remember that? Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're supposed to be going over there. This feels like we're moving in the wrong direction, Lord. Am I making sense? Guess what you read after he goes to jail? Very next line. And the Lord was with... You're trying to tell me that I, in my mind and perspective, am further from the place where you've called me to go, and you're with me? You're with me. You're here? You're not ashamed? You're not mad? You're not angry? You love me? So then these two guys come, and they need a dream interpreted. Remember that part? So he interprets a dream. For one of them, it, it goes well. The other, it literally doesn't go well. And so for the one that it's going to go well for, he's going to be restored right next to Pharaoh, the guy that Moses would come and say, let my people go, huh, later, right? But the guy goes, he gets restored, everything happens, and the next line we read is, the guy forgot Joseph. But guess who didn't forget Joseph? The God behind the promise never forgot Joseph. And then at the right time, when Pharaoh had this nightmare that no one could translate, this dream that no one could give him understanding of, the guy remembers 
the guy in prison. And in a moment, what took years starts to line up and begin to work. But what happened? There was a wait. Not because God hadn't given Joseph a promise, but because he carried a promise. He carried a promise. Because he carried a promise, his journey was not linear. Because he carried a promise, his journey was not easy. Because he carried a promise, because God had something greater for him, there was a tension and a turmoil that caused him to have to root deep either in himself or in God. You see, right, right now you are either wandering from God in your weight or you're drawing close to God in your weight, but there is good news. We are a community that has been called to wait together. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. So you're like, well, I'll wait, but I'm just going to do it on my own. Well, that's stupid. Because God made a family. A family that has a promise. That waits together. You're not Joseph. You're not Abraham. You are in Christ, loved, received, empowered, purposed, for his plan, called but you are called to a people, and we do it together. And that's what happens with the disciples in verse 12 of this text. Jesus ascends. They stand there. The angel says he'll come as he went. So they have this promise, and they've been called to wait. Where are they waiting? In Jerusalem. So look at what they do. Here's how we wait. If you want to draw close, here's how you wait. If you want not to be wasted, here's how you wait. You ready? Verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of a half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house that they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. Not Judas the betrayer. He was dead. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer. They met where? Together. Together. What were they? United. Why? Because they had a promise. If you want to wait and not wonder from God, you're going to need some people to wait with. This is me clanging the gong. We, as the people of God, have the promises of God, and we are called to wait together. This is what the disciples did. They didn't know when it was going to happen. They didn't know what it was going to look like when it did happen, but they knew it would happen and they needed to be together when it happened. I never will forget, I've told the story before, but uh, around 1999 as we were playing that Prince song, because tonight we're gonna be like it's 1990. Okay, sorry. My little Methodist church was freaking out because apparently uh, the computers were going to turn over at midnight, and all the Chick-fil-A fryers were going to malfunction, and there would never be another chicken sandwich. That's my version of it. But there would, there would be problems. I'm just trying to come up with an apocalyptic scenario. For me, it was Chick-fil-A not ever being open again. It's closed on Sunday, and then you wake up, and Monday, still closed. Tuesday, still closed. Wednesday, come, Lord Jesus, come. Okay? You know what breaks me down? You know what first world luxury I love most? Starts with chick Last name's Filet. That's what I love. I've eaten nine meals there consecutive before. And that's my record. Do I intend on breaking it before I hit 40? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> pastor Appreciation Month's in October. What could you get your pastor? I don't know. Chick-fil-A. 
Sounds like a good idea for me. I think that was from the Lord. <laughs> what am I talking about? Gathering. <laughs> got, got off on a good tra- that, that was from. I, I needed to go down there and express that. No, we, we gathered in our Methodist church. Why? Because we didn't know what was going to come, but we knew we needed to be together as a church. So we sang songs as it got closer and closer to midnight. And my dad realized nothing was going to happen, that we were losing our minds. He was always the kind of uh, dark-humored guy. Some of you have been gifted as having that dark humor to where you find the humor in everything. Like, you don't know why you're laughing at a funeral, but you are, and it's just happening. <laughs> and so he snuck back to the power box as we started the countdown. Yeah. Ten! Not, and, and it wasn't like excited. Like we weren't like, what's going to happen? Three, two, dad kills the power. An old saint in the church began to say things that you shouldn't hear in or outside of church. She would have made a sailor blush with the things that were said. They had to call in carpet cleaning. But you know what? We were together. (laughs) That's my point. When you don't know what's to come, but you know God's promised to be in it, you get together. You pull close with some people that may do things that are like, why would you do that? And and with with some that you would maybe not choose to be with. That's what makes it church if it weren't for Jesus bringing them into your faith community. We gather together. What did they do in their gathering? What did they do in their gathering? We don't know. Outside of prayer and preaching. We know that they prayed a lot together. We know that Peter preached a message together. But they did it with each other. Why? Because there is an aspect of our faith that requires in our waiting reminding. Prone to wander, Lord, I fear it. Prone to leave the God I love. Remember the old hymn? You and I are prone to walk away and not wait in faith. And God gave us a community that reminds us that the wait is worth it because what's on the other side of it will make sense. There have been so many times in my life where my current circumstances have made me want to wander and walk away. But the community of God helped me to wait because they reminded me of something that was greater than the moment that I was in. What what could they have done in between things? Well, they likely reminded each other of what he has done. Hey, Jesus carried our shame. Jesus paid for our sins in full. Jesus has forgiven us all of our sins. Jesus made us new as a new creation in Christ Jesus. We're no longer defined by sin. Sin can describe attitudes and habits and moments, but we now are defined by this new identity that we have received by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. So we remind each other that you are a new creation, that you, the old is gone, the new has come, that you are loved, that you are cherished, that you are valued, that you're empowered, that you have purpose, that God's got a plan with you, that he's not done in your life, that he's active, that that promise wasn't a lie. It wasn't just a utopian dream or an idea for yourself, but God is at work, even though you may not see it in the moment, in the process of bringing that promise to fruition in your life. So we remind each other of what he's done. We remind each other that he's demonstrated his love towards us because sometimes we don't feel lovable or loved. But Jesus demonstrated it so that in those moments we could be reminded by those around us that Jesus laid his life down 
for us, that his love's never-ending, that it's not contractual, but it's covenantal, meaning he doesn't give us love when we do the right behaviors and things, but he's constant in his love towards us because that is in nature and character who he is. Remind each other of what he has done. We remind each other of what we're doing that we may not be seeing or we may be forgetting. Hey, right now you've got a promise and you may not see it, but he's preparing the way for that promise. It may not make sense and your journey may be going in the opposite direction of where you think it should go, but under God's leadership, there's a reason for that turn. There's a reason for you taking the turns that you're taking and being in the places that you're being in because God has purpose in every turn and twist on the way. He is the way maker. He prepares the way. That's what he's doing. For some of us, we need to be reminded that he's active, that he's present, that he's near, because he doesn't feel near in this moment. Jesus was forsaken so that you wouldn't be forsaken. Jesus walked alone so that you wouldn't walk alone. And sometimes you need a community of people to come around you to remind you of, hey, it may not seem like God is near. You may not think God is at work, but he is active in your life preparing the way near and accessible to you. So we remind each other when we gather together of what he's done in our wedding. We remind each other of what he's doing in our wedding. And we remind each other, guess where we're going? Future tense, what he will do in our future. He will fulfill every promise. He will wipe away the tears of the saints. So temporary sorrow is preparing a peculiar glory that will lead to an eternal joy of how God will take the brokenness of this world and in his sovereignty over it, make it bring a beautiful, glorious ending. Every tear, every pain, every sorrow, there's no such thing as an absentee tragedy that God doesn't account and bring to a glorious praise in the end. We remind each other that he's coming again. It's not a punchline from a Joe Dirt movie. He's really coming Again, and that should affect what he will do, how we're going to live now. Since Jesus is returning, I don't want to be found selfish with my hands closed around my time and my stuff, but I want to be found generous, serving God, giving everything I have for the glory of God until he returns. We remind each other that this temporary sorrow will turn into eternal joy. We remind each other that we're going to live with him forever. That's home. Like, I don't care what sign you bought from whatever, Hobby Lobby or whatever that says home. What, you're not home. You're not. His presence is as close to home that we'll get on this side of eternity with the people of God. That's home. Like, I need one of those for out there. That's as close as I'm going to get. Sort of home. That's what I wanted to say. Someone makes it. Sort of home. It's as close as we're going to get. Sort of home. Sorry, I just get hung up on these things. Maybe because they charge $35 for eight cents of wood. But, but nonetheless, <laughs> sort of home. We remind each other when we gather together that we mourn, but we do not mourn as those who have no hope. Because why? We're going to see our loved ones in Christ again. I can't wait. I can't wait for Grandma in a glorified body <laughs> to be around the throne of God when she was dying. Um, we knew that it was going to be the last time I was going to get to see her. I was living in California. And I remember looking at her, and she said, Russ, I'm scared. And that, that, that shook me. Because, you know, like, Grandma is like the pillar of faith in our family. Like, if she's scared in the face of death, how much more? I mean, I'm going to be terrified. Like, I'm going to be a puddle. I'm going to suck my thumb and hold my teddy bear. Like, like what's going to? 
And so I tried to encourage her, and we started talking about heaven, and I could see the glow as she began to realize what was about to become a reality for her. And I looked at her. Last thing I ever said to my grandma, I said, Grandma, you're going to die soon. She's like, I know. And I said, when you do, and your eyes open in glory, I know this is weird, and you're probably not going to remember it, and it may not be theologically accurate, but I don't care in this moment, okay? I said, would you just look at Jesus and say, my grandson says, hi. (laughs) And we, like, deep belly just laughed. and I mean, to the point of tears. But, man, so when she died, (laughs) you know what went through my head? Hey, Jesus. <laughs> so I was the weird guy at the funeral. Because all I could think about is grandma's up there going, you see him? He said, hey. You know? <laughs> but man, I, when we get there and I get to be with grandma again, I get that first heavenly hug. We get to sing that first hymn with the angels and the saints. Holy Holy, holy. Grandma, who used to dance in the Methodist church and get everybody uncomfortable, starts dancing, and everyone becomes Pentecostal and can dance magically because it's heaven. It's going to be so good. <laughs> I can't wait. Like, I, there's some of you, like, I want to be there for your first praise lap. Like, that's my goal. I'm going to get there, and then I'm going to be waiting. I'm like, oh, wait. Wait till they hit it. Yeah, and then you're going to come in. <laughs> Sorry, that's two weeks in a row. I'm, tr- I'm working on it. I'm working on it. That's why we gather together. That's not an idea. That's reality. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said to the guy hanging on the cross beside him, today you will be with me where? Paradise. And in the midst of your mourning, sometimes you need to be reminded that God is not evil, vindictive, and mean, and is allowing continued separation for the purpose of suffering, but he's ended suffering and allowed an eternity of joy to begin in the loved one's life around you. So we gather together because we're a people of promise and we're waiting on many of those promises to come together, but we do it together. Number two, not only do we do it together, but we pursue in our waiting together. If you don't want to wander from God, but you want to draw close to God, if you want your faith to grow, you've got to pursue God together. You see, waiting is not a time in life that is passive, but it's actually active. It's for a purpose. I'm waiting because I need in this moment, to not theoretically or in some kind of mental ascent know this, but I need it to root and affect my soul that God is God, that he's alpha and omega, beginning and end, all-powerful and able and capable. And before I start on this journey and then freak out in the middle of it, I need to, in my waiting, get to a place that is confident in his presence and in his purpose and in his promise before the valley comes, before the journey comes. So what were they doing? They were constantly what? Gathered together in prayer. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer. United in what? One of the disciples, John, would kneel so much in prayer, in his waiting, that his knees would become swollen. They would call them camel knees. Probably not praying enough, folks, together. Jesus said his house would be called a house of preaching. Nope. This will be a house of...
house of prayer. What are they doing in prayer? They're preparing themselves to be sensitive to the leadership of the Spirit. They're preparing themselves to be responsive to what God would do. They're preparing themselves to be dependent on God. One of my favorite texts about this, I got invited to go and hang out with Upward Staff a couple weeks ago and really got to push in on it. But in Psalm 46, it says, be still. That's always been the hardest action that God could call me to. All right, we're going to move. How are we going to move? By being still. Now, look what the text says. And know that, that that strong language, it doesn't mean like, yeah, 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 I know it. Like what your kid says when you're telling them something that they aren't going to do. That's not knowledge. Knowledge is transformative. It roots deep to the point of conviction within your soul. Be still and know, like deep from within, what? That I am God. Like right now, many of you have stopped pursuing God in your weight. You're wandering away from God in your weight. And God's call to you would be to be still. Stop panicking. Stop running. Stop trying to fix. Stop trying to get back. Stop. Be still. And know that even in this moment, when it feels out of control, out of reach, That in this moment, God's sovereign, loving, guiding hand is providentially over you here, now. Not in the future. Not when you get back on Santa's good list. Not not when you stop doing, like, he loves you and is at work and in control over what's going on over you right now. So you're like, well, I've wasted decades and my life is mostly behind me. Notice the promise. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. It's going to happen. My will, my work, my plan will happen. So what do they do? They prayed, they listened to the preached word because they wanted to pursue God together. They pursued God together. They gathered together. They pursued God together because they were waiting. And then finally, the last thing they did in verses 16 to 26, I left myself no time to preach it to you. They prepared together. Prepared together. Why? Because there was a journey ahead. And they wanted to be ready. So they, through prayer, through preaching, recognizing that nothing that had just happened that seemed to be meaningless, the whole Judas thing, Jesus dying on the cross, God was working for it, his glory and the whole thing had now led them to what the Old Testament had predicted, that Judas would betray and that he would need to be replaced. So they reorganized, restructured, and got ready for this thing called Pentecost that was coming because there were going to be 12 that would stand speaking, not in their native tongue, but in different tongues, the gospel to people who were gathered in Jerusalem for the day the church was born. So so our waiting is preparing us for the other side when God says move. 
so that we'll be ready on that day to give witness to his glory, his goodness, and his work in our lives. So my question to you is, in your waiting, are you wondering from God or are you growing in expectancy on God? Have you connected the difficulties of the U-turns of your journey with the sovereignty and love and leadership of God in your life? Finally, would you do us the privilege of getting to pray with you as you wait in faith for God to move on his promise? Our prayer team's going to be down here. You respond as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand. Hallelujah.